Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. You know, we've been in this Lenten series and looking at different events in Jesus' life and going to zero in on prayer today and take a look at Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. One day when Jesus was praying, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This was a rather fascinating and intriguing week for me this past week. On Wednesday, I met with somebody to talk about the future of the church, Big C Church, in this current cultural context. This person has had some things rumbling around this topic. This person really cares about this subject. They really care about God's purposes in this world. They care deeply about the role of Oak Hills as one local church, part of God's redemptive plan. And this person really cares about their role in the church and their role in God's bigger purposes. And we sat down this week and we had a very energizing Conversation. That was on Wednesday morning. Later on Wednesday, I met with someone from the Journey Group. You may know what the Journey Group is. You may not. It is something we've had for the last several years. But the Journey Group is an amazing community of O'Killians who have spent the last six month, months meeting every single week to authentically dig into their lives and to invite God and to invite each other deeper into their stories. They've shared life together for the last Six months. They are journey group four, which means we've done it four years and this is journey group four. And over these last couple of years, I've watched the journey groups and I've watched how they morph over a year and how they interact with each other. And I believe the process of the journey group contains the ingredients to catalyze deep spiritual formation and authentic relationship and community in Christ between people. And just as a sidebar, we're going to crank this up again come next fall. We're going to try to have at least two groups of two journey groups going at the same time. And you've heard about this a few times. You may know some people who are in it. I cannot recommend this enough. You will become rather bored of my recommendations by the time the fall rolls around. But if you at all are interested, if anything stirs in you about what is that, I would encourage you to send me an email and that will get the ball started of getting you on the list as we start thinking about next fall. So I'm in this conversation this past Wednesday with someone who is currently in the journey group and they're telling me what the experience has been like for them. And every fifth word of what they are saying is interrupted by their unsuccessful attempt to hold back and choke back tears of gratitude. They just can't say it strongly enough, the impact that this has had on them. And this person's been following God for a very long time. 
And just listening to this person describe what has happened as they've connected with other people and as they've understood their own life with God at a more deeper level, stirred my soul toward God and stirred my soul toward His kingdom and got me thinking again and excited again about the restoration and the transformation Jesus brings to those who hunger for it. Thursday morning, I met with somebody who told me about an orphanage in southern Brazil. I think it's called Chain of Love. This was not the purpose of our meeting. In fact, it had nothing to do with the purpose of our meeting. The orphanage was simply an incidental detail. But when they mentioned it, it grabbed my attention. And the person went on to explain this orphanage was started by a guy who was abandoned by his parents when he was a young boy. They looked him in the face and they said, we can't take care of you anymore. And then they turned and walked away. And that just grabbed me. And now this orphanage has 80 to 90 children in similar circumstances who are being cared for and taught the way and the love of Jesus. And I'm just sitting there listening to this guy talk about something that has nothing to do with what it is that we're supposed to be talking about. And I'm absolutely stirred to the core by the magnitude of pain in this world and the restorative power of God displayed through those who are willing to do something about the magnitude of the pain in this world. Friday, I had a phone call with the president of Sioux Falls Seminary. It is the seminary affiliated with our conference of churches or with our denomination. The guy's name is Greg Henson, and we were talking about creative ways they're making theological education available to leaders and business people and stay-at-home moms and dads and lawyers and ministers and so on. These out-of-the-box ways of training and inspiring people to incarnate the kingdom in their jobs and in their neighborhoods and in their workplaces. Something that I've been thinking about for quite some time, talking with other people about something stirring around this, and now I'm on the phone with this guy, and I'm talking to him about this, and I'm sharing with him uh, you know, what this might mean for Oak Hills and how I've been thinking about ways we can help people who sense God's leading to learn at this level. And every time I said to him, Greg, here's what I'd like to see happen with the people from Oak Hills who are interested in these things, he would say in response, we can do that. We can do that. This is my kind of guy. We can do that. And it was like this big giant spoon stirring this big giant kettle of what is God up to in these questions emerging out of the stir, like what's God up to in this whole education, theology, theological education kind of a thing at Oak Hills? How can this kind of creative approach to communal learning stir and stoke another kingdom fire at Oak Hills? Later on Friday, I had coffee with a teenager. And by far, this was the most significant, most important, most meaningful, I would not have missed this for the world event of my week. I felt like the whole time I was talking to this guy and listening to this guy, God was saying to me, I'm up to something in this young man. He's tasted and he's seen that I am good and I'm up to something in him. And my heart was beating fast listening to this young guy talk about his hunger to know God and follow him and discern the next steps of his life. And in the middle of this conversation, as I was listening to him talk, strangely, out of nowhere, God, I think, said right to my stubborn brain, he said, you remember when you were that age? 
sitting on the opposite side of a table and some old guy was talking to you. And I remembered it like it was yesterday. And I sat there listening to him and I started to get emotional. He didn't know I was getting emotional. I pretended like I was trying to think of what to say next. But it just got down to my core of, man, I remember that like it was yesterday. His name was Pastor Jerry. And I used to say to him, well, what about this and what about that and blah, 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 blah. And he sat there time after time after time over years and listened and encouraged and pushed and promoted. And that all came back to me as I listened to this young guy in whom God is stirring. Then Friday night, Powerhouse Ministries had their graduation ceremony for four women who recently completed Powerhouse's two-year transformation journey. Some of you know Kevin and Angela Hauk. Kevin is one of the key leaders over at Powerhouse. And so each of these four women and a whole bunch of other people were gathered in this room on Friday night. And those four women, one after another, came up here and shared bits of their transformation story. They talked about the way they have met God over the last couple of years and the way He has restored their soul and repaired broken relationships all around their lives and healed them of their addictions. And I sat and just listened and took it all in and heard these stories and saw the tears and the reality of the kingdom of God was evident in their stories and in their journeys. And all these various conversations and experiences of this past week were a vivid reminder to me of the priority and the goodness of the kingdom of God and of the good things God is doing in our midst and around the world. And these conversations and these experiences brought me back this week to the front lines of kingdom work, back to the thrilling an adventurous edge of the redemption story. Back to where the action is. Front line, face to face, where Jesus' power is transforming people and transforming relationships and stirring things up toward his kingdom. I mentioned our Lenten series is called The Way, and for several weeks we've been considering some of the events in Jesus' life. Today we're talking about prayer, and specifically the prayer he taught his disciples to pray. The longer version is Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. We're looking at the Cliff Notes version, which is Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. This Lord's Prayer is more accurately called the Disciples' Prayer, because this is how we are to pray. And praying this prayer, I would suggest to you, keeps us on the front lines of what Jesus is doing in our lives, in those around us, and in the world. Praying this prayer keeps us where the action is. It recalibrates us to God's purposes. It recalibrates us to this idea of the kingdom breaking out on earth as it is in heaven. And we don't have time, obviously, to go through every single bit of this disciples prayer so we're going to look at just three phrases that are in luke's version and the first is teach us to pray step back for a minute and just think about this what comes to mind when we hear the word prayer or we hear the topic prayer all sorts of things probably come to mind boring requests falling asleep talking to god asking him for things writing a list going to god praying through the list hoping he gives it to us. Maybe the Lord's Prayer comes to mind. Maybe Ben Stiller's Prayer and Meet the Parents comes to mind. But how about, does this come to mind? Does the picture of Jesus himself praying come to mind? 
Luke begins chapter 11 by saying one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And one of his disciples sees him praying and does what any good disciple does. What a good disciple is supposed to do. He watches his master praying and then he inquires of what his master was doing because he, the disciple or the apprentice, wants to follow the example of his master. So he says, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. This is as straightforward as it gets. Jesus answers in verse 2, when you pray, say, and then he goes on with the prayer. Matthew's version says, this then is how you should pray. Simple question, Lord, teach us to pray. Simple answer, this is how you should pray. So I want to keep this simple. Let's commit ourselves to praying the Lord's Prayer at least once a day, every day, this week. Preferably with other people, which you'll find out about in a moment. And if you have our church app, you can find the Lord's Prayer, a copy of it, right in the church app. Just look around and you'll see it. And as disciples of Jesus, make this real simple. He did this. They asked him how to do it. And he said, here's how you do it. So for one week, let's pray the way Jesus told us to pray and pray the disciples' prayer. Another thing that often comes to mind when we hear the word prayer is that it is a personal thing between me and God. And obviously, there's a personal side to prayer, for sure. But prayer is not only a personal thing. Jesus says to his disciples, when asked, teach us to pray. He says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and here's the key part, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Matthew starts the prayer with our Father, not my Father. So Jesus is asked, teach us to pray, and in a sense, he responds by saying, well, it all starts when you pray with others. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation. It's communal. It's a group thing. So this is a prayer for the community of Jesus' disciples. This is the way, then, we are to pray. And this way of praying orients us toward the kingdom. It keeps us, if you will, on the redemptive edge of the kingdom. Now, Jesus is not into making rules or posting regulations. So this is not, obviously, the only way for disciples to pray, but it is a primary way. See, this prayer is important because it shapes and forms us, Oak Hills Church, into a kingdom-focused community. The words of this prayer, the content of the prayer, the things included in the prayer and the things excluded from the prayer, were given by Jesus to his community of disciples to form and to shape them around his purposes. So this prayer nurtures kingdom attitudes. This prayer nurtures inspires, catalyzes, forms kingdom priorities. In the words of one scholar, through its repetition, the message of this prayer would engrave itself into the life of the community. Second phrase is our Father. There may not be anything more important in one's personal prayer experience or in a church's 
communal prayer experience than the way God is addressed. Imagine the engraving that would happen in our community here at Oak Hills if the implications of our Father were to seep past our heads and get down a little bit more into our hearts. See, the name we use to interact with God is an indicator. I would say a strong indicator of our relationship with Him, of how we see Him, how we perceive Him. It shows, the name we use, the way we address God shows how we perceive God and how we relate to God. And Jesus is being very purposeful here in telling his disciples, when you pray, say, our Father. Now, the fatherhood of God was not a new concept he was introducing here, but he's clearly telling his followers to address God as their loving and good and ever-present Father. See, names matter. The way we address someone matters. It it says something about how we perceive them, how we understand them, and how we relate to them. When my phone rings and I look down and it says, Sam, I don't pick the phone up and say, good afternoon, my firstborn. I say, Sammy, what's going on, son? One of my friends is a professor at a university. I don't call him doctor. I don't call him professor. He's my friend. So I call him Gary. That's his name. And friends interact using one another's name. Now, calling him doctor, professor might be fitting if I'm introducing him to somebody, but you see the point. And I realize in talking about this, we've just walked into some sacred ground for some of us. Our father is difficult for some because God as father stirs up a myriad of pain and confusion. See, for some of us, father is not a good word. For some of us, this song... Good, good father. We just have nowhere to put that. We don't get it. That was not our experience. And so this can be a real obstacle. But in teaching us how to pray, Jesus said, address God as our father. See, this is the power of prayer. The spirit can bring healing through these two simple words. Now, it's not a rule to follow every time. There are times to address God as almighty and everlasting triune God because he is almighty and everlasting and a triune God. But our Father is how Jesus said to address God when we pray. So our Father reminds us that the God of the universe brought us, brought you, brought me into his family. He is our Father, which means we are his children. Relationship. You are his son. You are his daughter. When we were baptized, we were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A new community. A new identity. Not talking about stuff up here. Talking about concrete new identity. Baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, And the spirit, a new identity as a beloved son, a new identity as a beloved daughter, and yes, a whole new family where he is our God and we are brothers and sisters. This is about relationship with God. 
close and intimate relationship, family relationship. And it points to God's desire for connection with us. It speaks to his concern for us, his involvement in our lives, his care for us, and most especially it speaks to his unfathomable love for us. A good father's love for his children. A good father's love for his children. It evokes the idea of family, not just any family, functional family, healthy family, loving family. And again, I realize this bumps into a host of issues many people have around families and around fathers and the lack of love they experienced and the expectations they experienced that they could never have achieved even if they did achieve them. The performance plan some families and some fathers impose on their children and it becomes this beat down day after day. I'm aware of the reality of the pain that is wrapped around all this and this is why this way of addressing God is so formative and so important for us. It shapes us into a new family with God as our Father and we as brothers and sisters loved by a good Father, cared for by a good Father, helped by a good Father, encouraged by a good Father and disciplined by a good Father. A new family incarnated and embodied in a thing the Bible calls the church. A place and a people for those who are lonely, Forgotten, displaced, bruised, beaten, battered, broken, damaged. In other words, a place and a people for people like us. Not long ago, my daughter Izzy was home from college for a while, a weekend, and I didn't know where she was on a particular day, so I grabbed my phone and I called her phone, and as soon as it started ringing, I heard it ringing in our house, meaning she'd left her phone at home. That'd be a fascinating trail to explore, this idea of expensive phones, but still impossible to reach. We won't go there, but we could go there. So I'm on the phone, and her phone is ringing, and I see it ringing on the table. I walk over to it, and I look down at it, and I see the name on the screen as I was calling her. And the name said, Daddy-O. I really like that. I like that she thinks of me not just as father, not just as dad, but as daddy-o. It's got an Italian flair to it, I think. (laughs) I like it because it tells me something about how she perceives me. And when I see how she perceives me, it tells me something about our relationship, particularly from her perspective. God is king. God is creator, God is sustainer, God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, God is holy, God is a God of justice, God is a God of truth. But my life and your life and our life together, right now, this moment, at this time, in this space in history, changes. And it is transformed when we realize he is our father. And we are brothers and sisters in his family. Last phrase, your kingdom come. Father, Luke puts it, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Jesus tells us to begin with our father. 
begin by delighting in the relationship we have in this new family, the whole construct of life, the whole framework from which life begins, the whole point at which we venture out is in this construct of our Father. And then we pray for his name to be kept sacred and for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So think again, what comes to mind when you hear the word prayer, requests, asking, lists, I got this coming up, I got that coming up, all of which are valid. But the first request in the disciples' prayer, according to Luke and according to Matthew, is to pray for God's kingdom to come everywhere. In other words, we start not with what we want. We start with what God wants. We start with his reign, his goodness, his shalom, to come at Intel, to come at Vista High School, to come into our neighborhood, to be on our team. And as we pray this prayer, the priority of the kingdom of God, his reign, his rule, his healing, his goodness, his shalom, becomes gradually our top priority. The kingdom as our top priority. The kingdom of God as your primary concern as you do your life. When I pray alone, it often sounds something like this. God, thanks for being God. I've got a sermon to write. Please help me. Some version of that. And you know what? That's good. Dependence. Leaning in. Trusting him. But this way of praying only keeps me trapped in me and keeps me trapped in my issues and priorities. But in this disciples' prayer, the kingdom is the primary concern. What God is doing. His action. And his activity in the world. And when I pray this disciple's prayer with you, I am shaped, you are shaped, and we are shaped to prioritize the kingdom of God over everything else in our lives. We pray the presence and the power of Jesus to break out and bring his transforming and healing power. And that is our chief concern no matter what our vocation is. See, Jesus is teaching us to pray for his worldview to become our worldview. Namely, that the kingdom of God would become our top priority. It occurred to me over the past few days as I was reflecting on these wonderful conversations and experiences with people from Wednesday through Friday night, it occurred to me how easy it is to become numb to the thrill of what God is doing. How easy it is, especially in suburbia, to live behind so many buffers that keep us a safe distance from the front lines of kingdom work and kingdom action. And we simply must push through these barriers and these buffers and get ourselves into situations where we are on the front lines of what God is doing in us, what God is doing around us, what God is doing through other people and what God is doing through us. In suburbia, we can easily and quickly lose this redemptive edge. In suburbia, it is easy to settle instead of venturing into the new frontier of God's kingdom. What is God up to at work? What is God up to in my school? What is God doing in my neighborhood? 
We have to intentionally pursue these kinds of things. In suburbia, we have to pray for and then put ourselves in situations where we see firsthand the healing power of God and we see firsthand and experience firsthand His transforming grace. And if we don't push ourselves and take risks, we will end up missing the adventure of the kingdom behind a multitude of buffers that keep us safe and secure and intoxicated with ultimately silly, silly things. Your kingdom come. What a prayer for us for us to pray as a church. How do we increasingly orient our ministry and our lives around the sole purpose of God's kingdom? How do we invest together in God's kingdom? How do we do our part as a church family to catalyze kingdom efforts in one another, to catalyze kingdom endeavors that bring about the transformation and healing of broken people like us? How do we live on the front lines of kingdom work? This is not easy in suburbia. We have to work on this. We have to be purposeful about this. Numbing is right around the corner. How do we stay sharp for the kingdom? How do we stay hungry for the kingdom? How do we stay alert to it? How do we live on the front lines of kingdom work and resist the numbing, dulling temptations of suburbia? Dallas Willard, in this marvelous quote you can read on the screen, it's also in the app, and as you read the Lord's Prayer this week, I would encourage you to read this multiple times. The world can no longer be left to mere diplomats, politicians, and business leaders. They have done the best they could, no doubt, but this is an age for spiritual heroes, a time for men and women and young people to be heroic in their faith and in spiritual character and power. The greatest danger to the Christian church today is that of pitching its message too low. The greatest danger of church today is to encourage us to take God and fit Him in somehow. The greatest danger we face living in suburbia is to find a shelf in our lives for all the God stuff. The greatest danger we face is to fall into this temptation. You know, I did my time serving Jesus when I was younger. We did this and we did that. We did the other thing. And now is a time for me to retire and rest and eat and drink and be merry. And all of God's people said, nonsense. You're busy. Life is full. I got too much to do. I've got a lot of demands. My time is restricted. On and on it goes, and I get all that. And so what I'll do is when life is no longer as busy, then I will do something to invest in the kingdom and all God's people shout nonsense. Pitching the message too low. I have to tell you, that phrase gets at me because I'm often charged with pitching the message. So pitching the message too low would be for me or anybody who stands up here to somehow encourage you or reinforce in you that it's all about you. It's this whole thing, this gospel thing, this Christian thing. It's about me and it's about my salvation and it's about the fact that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And I got that all fixed and boxed up. So I'll take that box and I'll set it over here on this shelf. And that's all good. And I'll do a little bit over here and do a little bit over there. And I just want to scream, all of us, say Nonsense. That's pitching the message too low. That is not Christianity. 
Christianity is not an individual sport. So we just kind of do our best and the rest doesn't matter. This is the miraculous mystery of those who have decided to follow Jesus in ways I can't explain because I don't understand. We have been knit together through baptism and through the Spirit into a new family where God is our Father and you are and I are brothers or you are my sister and I am your brother. And those aren't just fancy religious words. There is a knitting together. It was God's intention that we would be knit together because this Christianity thing is a team sport. It's a we thing. It's an us thing. Our Father. Forgive us. Lead us not. Our Father, your kingdom come. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you on this day as your children and as brothers and sisters united in and through the person of Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit to knit us together and compel us to lay down all other identities but for our identity as your beloved child. And I continue to pray for the soul of who we are as Oak Hills Church, that we will not settle for a message that is pitched too low. And we will push ourselves through the many barriers and numbing techniques and through the many things that will distract us living in this suburban culture, that we might be people who live and we might be a church on the front lines of what you're doing in building your kingdom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.